Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Is Donald Trump going to stop us from voting in November, or is he going to mess with the vote? As you know, I've been saying for some time, I think that I personally believe that their strategy is to use the 12th Amendment, which says that if enough states can't certify their vote as being legitimate, their electoral college vote, then the Electoral College vote is set aside and the House of Representatives decides who's president, each state having one vote. And the people in the states who decide the vote are the members of the combined Senate and House or Assembly or whatever they may call it. And I think that there are 33 or 34 states that are Republican controlled, which means that Donald Trump gets reelected. I've got to write another op-ed about this. It's just so clear to me that this is the direction they're moving. But today is the anniversary of the 1989 crushing of democracy and dissent in Tiananmen Square in China. And uh, right now we're seeing in Hong Kong, where this year, for the very first time, protests have been outlawed or demonstrations, you know, whatever you want to call that, in solidarity with those folks have been outlawed. But protesters are doing it anyway. This anniversary is happening in the midst of a week in which the President of the United States has militarized Washington, D.C. and is calling for the crushing of dissent here in the United States. And I, I mean literally nothing less than the crushing of dissent. The Trump campaign has announced a Army for Trump website where they're selling camo hats. And Donald Trump sent me an email this in which he basically said that, you know, we've got to crush the left. This should be a wake-up call to all Americans. Fox News and Senator Tom Cotton in the New York Times, which, by the way, has caused a whole bunch of New York Times reporters and op-ed writers to tweet that they are ashamed of their own newspaper, that it published Tom Cotton's op-ed, and did so without attaching the ability of readers to comment. Fox News and Senator Tom Cotton are openly promoting 
you know, what I call fascism here in the United States. Obviously, they're not calling it that, but I don't know how else you describe it. And while there are a few dissenting voices, the White House, the Republicans in the United States Senate, the conservative judges in the federal judiciary, they all seem to say, oh, this is fine with us. In fact, yeah, double down as Tom Cotton is doing. America has arrived at a crisis point. And frankly, I don't think we're quite there yet. Donald Trump right now is building a wall around the White House. I mean, maybe he's finally building a wall that Mexico will pay for. But as he is doing this, our democracy is literally at risk to the extent that it's still a democracy and not an oligarchy. And I think the next six months are going to determine whether this democratic republic survives or goes the way of other authoritarian regimes have in recent years. Erdogan's Turkey, Bolsonaro's Brazil, Duda's Poland, Orban's Hungary, or, or even a frightening echo of Europe in the early 20th century. Mussolini's rise to power was, you know, people tend to think that Mussolini followed Hitler. No, Mussolini preceded Hitler. Mussolini rose to power in the late 20s with the word fascism. He didn't invent the word, but he claimed to have invented the word. You know, do you think that our votes will be counted this fall? I am very concerned. Or do you think that it's possible that Donald Trump is going to succeed in crushing democracy? There are a number of pieces around this. I mentioned Tiananmen Square. The, the Chinese Communist Party is pushing this new law, or actually has approved this new law, that basically cracks down on anybody in China who speaks up. Jimmy Carter, former president of the United States, just came out. He's 95 years old. He said, we need a government as good as its people. We are better than this. The Secretary of the Army. There was a piece in the Washington Post this morning about how after Esper, Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense, came out and said, no, I don't think we should invoke the Insurrection Act. I mean, basically, you know, that and other things. I mean, basically, he, he pushed back on Trump. And then he walked back his pushback, but still Trump is running around going, okay, that's it. We got to pull a plug on this guy. We got to get rid of him. Well, the Secretary of the Army, who works for the Secretary of Defense, you know, you've got each of the branches, the Navy, the Air Force, et cetera. This guy's name is Ryan McCarthy. And he tweeted this morning, he said, every soldier and department of the Army civilian swears an oath to support and defend the Constitution. That includes the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. Now, this was at the same time that Donald Trump was tweeting, you would think that the killers, terrorists, arsonists, anarchists, thugs, hoodlums, looters, Antifa, and others would be the nicest, kindest, most wonderful people in the whole wide world. No, they are what they are. Very bad for our country. Right. Meanwhile, the former Secretary of Defense, General Mattis has published basically an open letter. He says, we must reject any thinking of our cities as a battle space, which is how Esper had described them three, four days ago in a, in a conference call with governors. We must reject any thinking of our cities as a battle space that our uniform military is called upon to dominate, quoting Esper. 
he says, militarizing our response sets up a conflict, a false conflict between the military and civilian society. It erodes the moral ground that ensures a trusted bond between men and women in uniform and the society they are sworn to protect and of which they themselves are a part. He quotes James Madison from Federalist 14. America united with a handful of troops or without a single soldier exhibits a more forbidding posture to foreign ambition than America disunited with 100,000 veterans ready for combat, which is where we're at now. Back to General Mattis. Instructions given by the military departments to our troops before the Normandy invasion reminded soldiers that, quote, the Nazi slogan for destroying us was divide and conquer. Our American answer is in union there is strength. He goes on to say, Donald Trump is the first president in my lifetime who does not try to unite the American people, does not even pretend to try. Instead, he tries to divide us. We are witnessing the consequences of three years of this deliberate effort. Well, I would respectfully disagree with the general. I would say that that was Richard Nixon's strategy and that was Ronald Reagan's strategy. The thing is, they did it with somewhat less violence. Nixon, I mean, <laughs> look at how he dealt with the war, anti-war protesters and civil rights protesters. But Mattis goes on to say we must reject and hold accountable those in office who would make a mockery of our Constitution. On the line with us is Professor Richard Wolff, Professor of Economics, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, author of numerous books, his most recent, Understanding Socialism. Uh, democracyatwork.info and rdwolf with two fs.com are his websites. You can tweet him at profwolf. Uh, Professor Wolf, welcome back and thank you for joining us. I'm curious your thoughts. I tweeted a photograph of myself and a fellow by the name of Armin Lehman, who I worked with back in the 1980s. We uh, literally traveled the world together teaching to the travel industry. And I did not at that time, initially anyway, when I first met Armin, we got to know each other very, very well, know his past. When we moved to Oregon, when Louise and I moved to Oregon about 15 years ago, a little more than that, Armin came over to our house and brought a manuscript with him. And he said, I want you to read this and advise me on how I can get this published. And uh, it was titled In Hitler's Bunker. Armin was the 16-year-old boy in the Hitler Youth who brought the message to Hitler that the war was lost. And he stood outside the door when Hitler went in and committed suicide. He was there when Goebbels committed suicide with his family. And he, uh, the book is in print. Uh, I helped him get it in print. Armin died in 2008, but he's just an extraordinary guy. He created a foundation for peace. And he became quite a student of German history. And he told me that although he was, you know, he, he was born after Hitler had already come to power, or around the time that Hitler came to power, he was six years old when Hitler came to power, actually. He said that Hitler was really good for the German economy at first. And that was the thing that he heard from his father over and over again. I'm curious, how does fascism work in the context of economics? And what lessons can we learn from that? Okay, good question. Typically, and Germany is a prime case, fascism comes into power during a time of the collapse of capitalism. Hitler takes power in January of 1933. So that is literally three and a half years, roughly, after the crash of 1929, which was as bad in Germany as it was here in the United States. So you had had three and a half years of rising unemployment, Remember, the Germans at that time were also working under the burden of having lost World War I, having suffered terrible reparations payments they had to make to the victorious countries. 
and also one of the worst inflations in world history. In 1923, for example, their exchange rate of the German mark to the dollar went from roughly six marks to a dollar to 10 billion, with a B, marks to the dollar, which is an inflation beyond anything we have seen uh, basically since that time, at least in the West. So it was a complete collapse of their society, um, building over the whole 1920s, and then crashing in 29. What Hitler did was take advantage of the breakdown of capitalism, and but he took advantage of it in a very particular way. Germany in, 19, in the early 30s was basically split 50-50. Uh, that is, 50% of German voters, for example, in 1932, voted for either the Socialist Party or the very strong Communist Party in Germany. And the other half voted for a collection of conservative, old-line parties, parties associated with the Roman Catholic Church, and so on from southern Germany, etc. Uh, the business community was horrified by the fact that the left was so strong. The labor movement was strong, the socialists were strong, the communists. And they had been growing stronger for the previous 40 years, so the handwriting was on the wall. The next election, the one in 1933 or 4, would bring a majority to the socialists and the communists, and then where would they be? And remember, they're the employers. They're a small minority, like employers always are. They had no mass base. They had no mass following. Half the country was against them, and the other half was scattered around in a variety of parties, those who wanted a return of the Kaiser, the, the monarchy in Germany, things like that. The only social force available at the end of the 1929-30 period were the fascists. Hitler's organization, which said the following, we are the only alternative to socialism. They went to the business community and said, you don't have a mass base, you can give us the money and we will organize the unemployed, the poor, everyone we can reach into a mass organization. They had been doing that already in the late 1920s. Once the business community made its decision, which was done by 1930-31, they took off. And they became the only conceivable alternative. They were not as big as the socialists and communists together, not even close. But they were growing when everything else on the right was disappearing. The deal was done, and the business community turned to their old leader, a man named Hindenburg, who was the president at the time, and he actually invited Hitler to make a government as an attempt to stave off the left. So the way capitalism, the way Hitler worked it then was he promised to smash the socialists and communists. The minute he got into office, he did that. And I mean literally arresting, uh, jailing, and eventually killing huge numbers of them. Uh, he made the government into a kind of organiz official organization that transferred the masses of his political party into the government. And they said to the business community, we will enforce capitalism. We will make all the workers go back. We will destroy the existing labor unions, which they did. We will replace them with our own Nazi party uh, personnel. 
And what you had was a, a putting people back to work, no question. Hitler put the German unemployed back to work, but he put them back to work in a private capitalist system, which, in effect, this new government, the merger of the state and the Nazi party, would enforce and that's what they did. They enforced people. You basically had no choice. You had to go to work, and you had to produce whatever this coalition of a political party on the right, namely the Nazi party, and the government which they had taken over uh, undertook. And that's how they solved the problem uh, in the process, literally destroying uh, the existing left in Germany. I got an email today from Donald Trump. Let me make something clear. These violent acts are not acts of peaceful protest. These are acts of domestic terror. Fake news and radical left Democrats are pushing a narrative that is far from the truth. They don't want to see all the, you know, blah, 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 dangerous thugs running rampant through our streets. Is this the same thing? Am I being hyperbolic Absolutely. and being worried about this? No, it's exactly the same thing. It's the logic of this situation. Mr. Trump is presenting himself to the employers of America, particularly the big businesses. You better tolerate me, because if you don't, the alternative is, and then you can fill in the blank, terrorist, radical left, Bernie Sanders. It doesn't really matter. He is going to save them from their own folly in a collapse system between the pandemic and, and the economic crash, he is going to be the person who will rally everyone to support their system. And they need that because they can see from every poll and now from the streets that the mass of people, particularly the young, is turning against their system. I am very worried, uh, Professor. Me Are too. you? Yes. Yeah, okay. Professor Richard Wolf, democracywork.info, rdwolf with two fs.com. Professor, thank you so much for dropping by today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the home of the Democratic Revolution. Tom Hartman here with you on the line with us is Jeff Charlotte. He is a professor at Dartmouth College. He's a journalist, author of six books, including The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, his latest, This Brilliant Darkness. He's also the executive producer of the Netflix series, The Family, five-part miniseries. And you'll see my face in there if, uh, when you watch it. It's absolutely brilliant. And if you haven't seen it now, you know, write it down and put it on your list. It's called The Family. It's on Netflix. Twitter handle is Jeff Charlotte, S-H-A-R-L-E-T. Jeff, welcome back to the program, and thanks for being with us. I'm, I'm wondering if you could speak. I've been, I've been talking this morning about the historic role of how fascism interacts with groups. We just had a long conversation, a good conversation with Professor Richard Wolff about how the big corporations and the economy in Germany in the 1930s and Hitler kind of interpenetrated each other. Can you speak to the historic role of right-wing Christianity and the rise of fascism? Yeah, I think uh, there's, in fact, there's a lot of questions right now, people looking at Trump holding that Bible a Bible, not his Bible, outside St. John's Church and saying, how can we stand the hypocrisy? And that's ignoring the fact that, in particularly in the United States, and particularly in, uh, but not exclusively, white evangelicalism has long been a power tradition and an idea that sees in Christ not the lamb, not this loving figure, but a strong man, 
and is looking for a worldly counterpart. And Trump has found that and embraces Trump as a strong man. And along with that comes a sort of an ease with white nationalism, with corporate power and so on. But at the heart of it is this idea of, a, a, of an all-encompassing power. Now, a lot of Americans who aren't familiar with your work or haven't been paying close attention to these kind of things would say, well, how can the white evangelicals embrace Donald Trump? He's had three wives. He cheated on every single one of them various ways at various times uh, that have now come out. He has declared bankruptcy six times. He's ripped off literally thousands of people based on over 3,000 lawsuits for his you know, failing to pay contractors and things. He is... Uh, in so many ways, the definition of somebody who is not just not a Christian, but the antithesis of the teachings of Jesus, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 25, it must just be that they're hooking up with him because he said he's going to protect their tax-exempt status or something. There's got to be some in, you know, self-interest here. Can you speak to what the real connection is in this whole King Cyrus meme that's floating through the right way, the conservative Christian community? Let me back up just a little bit before I get to King Cyrus and, you know, this idea of who Trump is, is because you said particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, that's what you say, Tom, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. We're also talking about the Christ. He says, I come not to bring peace, but the sword. There's more than one way to read Jesus. And they, again, this I really think is important, is what they read in Jesus is strength and power. So it's not as hypocritical for them as it seems, but it is. There is an element of transactional, and I think that's an element that that those of us on the left and secular folks need to understand, too, is we say, "How how can they do this? Well, they're not dummies. They have ends that they want to achieve. And remember, it's not just about tax breaks. It's about transformation of U.S. law at every level. And, you know, you look at the Trump administration as Ralph Reed, longtime Christian right political operative, uh, key figure, says, he says, we have more of our more Christians, by which he means right wing political fundamentalists, more Christians in government than we have ever had before. And that's actually True. I mean, not more Christians, more fundamentalists. That's true. So they're getting, they're getting, you know, uh, getting a lot of bang for their buck. But they do then go t- take this theological turn that you refer to, King Cyrus. King Cyrus in the Bible is not a Zagoy. Um, He's not one of the Israelites, and yet he plays a sort of instrumental role for the Israelites. And and in this sense. They can look at Trump and have embraced Trump. And by the way, this comes from uh, 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 Isaiah 45, and Trump is president number 45. Coincidence, you know, I sort of, I think not mm-hmm. as that thinking, right, is that Trump is like Cyrus. Trump is a tool used by God. And in fact, his very ungodliness, the very, all the ways in which he seems, you know, thrice married, as people like to say, and, and you know, everything, this is proof of God's goodness. If this guy can be elected, God must surely be doing it, right? God's hand must be in play here. Um, and, and and look, they're being proven right all the time. They're getting what they want, right down to that walk across Lafayette Park to St. John's Church, which was a performance of the merger of state power, of violent power, and of Christian power that they've been looking for. You know, they put their faith in this tool, and it's been rewarded. Yeah. It's been a lot of years since I lived in Germany. That was 87, 88, and read uh, William Shearer's The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. But my recollection is that Hitler 
uh, with his Reichsbishop uh, Muller was his name, that Hitler was actually fairly effective at manipulating Christian sentiment. And I'm guessing, and I'm no student of this, and I'm not sure if you are either, um, but I'm guessing that Mussolini did as well in Italy. And I'm not sure, frankly, about Franco in Spain. Is this something that you've ever looked into, Jeff? Franco in Spain was a right-wing Catholic dictatorship. That's what it was. And yeah, these kinds of collaborations have always been there. I find them actually a little bit less useful. The German context, the Italian context, the Spanish context. You could also say Sahardo in the Indonesian context and the use of Islam. We could look at Erdogan in Turkey, sort of a proto-Trump right now, and his use of a, a, a kind of hyper-capitalist, far-right version of Islam. You need to look at the American context. It does us no good to say that what Trump is doing was like Nazi Germany, because what Trump is doing is like Trump. This is the moment we confront right now. And if we, I, I worry that sometimes on the left we spend too much time trying to neatly line this up with bad events in the past, and it's blinding us to the particular nuances of the moment, particular uh, aspects of the American right, one of which is really historic and often sort of under-commented on, is the alliance of right-wing white evangelicals uh, and right-wing Catholics. Protestantism and Catholicism historically haven't gotten along very well. But you look at a guy like Bill Barr, uh, who's a right-wing Catholic, uh, working with a guy like Mike Pompeo, who's a right-wing evangelical, and you see a coalition and an alliance and a kind of a new theology being formed. That doesn't have a precedent in Germany, Italy, or Spain. That's happening right now. And if we're going to understand it and identify the fault lines within it, we want to be informed by history, but not trying to pour this into a mold. Sure, yeah. A good point. And, and, and I take your point. At the same time, we're seeing, I, do, I believe that there's not a single Protestant on the Supreme Court right now, and all, all or most of the Catholics are members of this uh, Opus Dei Church in D.C. Is this, is this something that we should be concerned about? Uh, well, Opus Dei is not a church. Opus Dei is a, it's, uh, it's an interesting sort of entity within Catholicism. I believe founded in 1935, same year as uh, the, the group I've written so much about, the family, which sponsors the National Prayer Breakfast, um, and both emerging at this moment when they're looking around the world, and they see fascism here, and they see communism, Stalinism there, and they see what they perceive as the weak response of the democracies. They think democracy is not, is not enough. They're certainly not going to be communist, but they also don't want to be fascist. Um, what they don't like about fascism is the displacement of God as a central figure by a Fuhrer or Mussolini and so on. And so they develop what they see as this kind of third way. That Catholic tradition develops a much more intellectual and, and draws from a much more intellectual tradition. And that's, you know, I think that's big part of why the judiciary, uh, the right-wing judiciary is dominated by right-wing Catholics. There's an intellectual tradition for them to draw on. I wouldn't make too much of their affiliation with Opus Dei. I'd make a hell of a lot more of the decisions that they are issuing from the bench. In other words, it's right out there in the open. We don't need to look behind the screen. Trump is putting it right out there for us to see. Right. We don't need conspiracy theories or even a historical context necessarily to, to see what's going on. The context, yeah. Jeff Charlotte. The context, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Jeff, uh, your uh, five-part series you've done for Netflix is absolutely brilliant. It's called The Family. His Jeff's most recent book, This Brilliant Darkness. Thanks, Jeff. 
Anna Applebaum, I don't know if you caught this. If you didn't, it's worth going and looking for the clip. She was on Joe Scarborough's show this morning on MSNBC Morning Joe. And she is a Pulitzer Prize winning historian. And she said, and I quote, what will come next? She was talking about how what we are witnessing is essentially the rise of fascism. Masha Gerson, I believe is her name, was also on, who has a new book about authoritarianism. But Applebaum said, what will come next? In a lot of these countries that cease to be democracies, what comes next is the attempt to steal an election. And what I hope all Americans will be focused on over the next several months is, will Trump and the Republican Party collaborate in an attempt to steal this election? Will they try to change the rules? Will they mess around with distance voting? Will they exacerbate the problems caused by the pandemic to prevent people from voting? Do they value democracy in America enough to allow a real election to go through and to allow themselves to lose? She said, I'm doubtful as to whether we can rely on the party leadership. And yeah, so let's check out the party leadership. Casey Hunt stood down in the basement of the Capitol building yesterday with a camera and a microphone as all these Republican senators were on their way to a Republican luncheon and they had to walk by her and she was shouting questions at them and poking a microphone at them. And here's what the Republican senators had to say. Only one, and I'll read her comment first, only one said anything that I found reassuring and that was Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. She said, what we saw last night, this is uh, the, the question that Casey was asking was, what do you think about what the president did clearing the park, essentially? Keep in mind, this was yesterday. We're talking about the day before yesterday. Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, the Republican from Alaska, says, what I saw last night was not the America that I know. But Ron Johnson, the Republican senator from Wisconsin, when he was asked about the president's photo op at St. John's, he says, oh, I didn't really see it. Kelly Loeffler, Republican from Georgia, she just kept on walking, didn't say a word. Pat Roberts, the Republican senator from Kansas, I don't have a comment on that. Senator Rick Scott, the Republican from Florida and former CEO of a company that committed the largest Medicare fraud in the history of America, he said, well, we could all do better when asked if Donald Trump could do better. Senator Mitt Romney, Republican from Utah, was asked, what did you think about this uh, clearing the park? He says, I didn't watch it closely enough to know. Senator Mike Enzi, the Republican from Wyoming. Sorry, I'm late for lunch. Senator Marsha Blackburn, the Republican from Tennessee, walked by without saying anything. Senator Dan Sullivan, the Republican from Alaska, walks by with no response. Senator Rob Portman, Republican from Ohio, I'm late for lunch. Senator Tim Scott, the only black senator in the entire Republican caucus, says, I've already said too much. They've got him cowed now. Senator Steve Daines, the Republican from Montana. What did you think about the president clearing the park? I was grateful for the president's leadership. Senator Ted Cruz asked if what we saw at the White House last night was an abuse of power. Senator Ted Cruz said, by the protesters, yes. Like the protesters have power? Really? When did protesters start running the country? Bill Cassidy, the senator from Louisiana, Republican senator. I didn't follow it. I'm sorry. Senator Josh Hawley, the Republican from Missouri, the United States senator, says, uh, I've seen conflicting reports about what happened. 
Senator Richard Shelby, the Republican from Alabama, walks by, no comment. Senator Joni Ernst, the Republican from Iowa, she said, my head hurts. She asked uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, what do you think about Trump's leadership in in this moment? He says, I'm not going to critique other people's performances. And Mike Lee, Senator Mike Lee from Utah, Mitt Romney's colleague, he says, "Uh, violence is scary. Right. Meanwhile, we've got this uh, new thing going on. Uniformed people, uniformed, armed people surrounding the White House with no badges, no identification, no indication what branch of the service or of whatever they're from. Apparently, they're all, these are riot guards from federal prisons, apparently. But no ID. Now, I don't know if this is a violation of a specific law. I'm guessing if it was, somebody would have called it out by now. And I know that at least one Democratic senator has said that they're going to propose legislation to forbid this. But this is super dangerous. These guys were, uh, according to this report from the Washington Post today, as it turns out, each of these encounters was apparently with elements of the Bureau of Prisons called to the region by Attorney General William Barr. But when you can't identify somebody and they kill the guy next to you, what do you do? How do you hold them accountable? Who do you call? What do you say? This is what they do in fascist countries. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Do you think Trump is going to let us vote? Or if we do vote, do you think our vote will be counted or will matter? Dennis in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Well, I sent Tom Cotton an email and I had some choice things to say to him. I don't know if he'll read it. Probably won't. Some staffer will probably, uh, you know, delete it or report me to the FBI, maybe. You know, basically, I said, you're an un-American fascist Trump You don't believe in democracy. You don't deserve to hold your office as a senator and so on and so forth. I don't know how many other people are going to send emails to him. I imagine I'm not just the only one, but I think a clear message has to be made. And I'm glad Mattis and some others are doing it that. Basically, Trump is crossing the Rubicon. He is pushing us toward fascism. And I think what you said earlier about invoking the 12th Amendment, I mean, that is just horrifying because I can imagine the day after the election, a number of red right wing states, you know, the taker states, as opposed to the giver states, are going to say, oh, well, we can't certify the election. And then that's that. Yeah, it's only going to take a couple of large states. If Florida and Texas do it, that's it. It goes to the House of Representatives. And by the way, this happened in 1876. It's not like we've never seen this movie before. When the Democratic candidate, Sam Tilden, got more popular votes and won the electoral vote. But nonetheless, we ended up with Rutherford B. Hayes as president, the Republican. And, you know, the deal, obviously, that they cut was that they would end Reconstruction and pull the military out of the southern states and all that kind of stuff. But we have seen this movie before. And that was because Oregon and three southern states, Mississippi, Alabama, there's one other one, I'm not sure, it might have been Georgia, refused to certify their elections. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would have to think that Trump, you know, we always accuse Trump of not knowing history, but I would have to figure he knows that history. Well, he's and, got people uh, around him who know history. Oh, yeah, exactly. They are his advisors. He doesn't need to know squat. 
<laughs> Probably not. But, you know, what you said about what's going on in Europe, too. I mean, it's scary there with Orban and what's his name, Duda in Poland. Duda uh, in Poland, yeah. Yeah, and Bolsonaro, I mean, he's probably, any day now, he'll probably declare himself the president of Brazil for life. And Trump knows this, and he figures if those guys can do it, I can do it. If Putin can become the dictator of Russia for life, I'm going to do it, too. And when I get old, I think that was going through his head, Dennis. I think two years ago that was going through his head when he visited North Korea. And I believe it was was it Jared? No, this was actually this is when they went to Saudi Arabia. And one of the guys with him, and maybe it wasn't Jared, but it was one of the people around him who you would have thought would have known better, might have been a a Republican member of Congress, said, boy, it's remarkable. The people of Saudi Arabia really love their king. There wasn't a single protest sign when we drove down the, you know, the long thoroughfare on our way to the palace. And of course, there wasn't a single protest sign. You get your head cut off in the public square in Riyadh on Friday afternoon if you protest. (laughs) At that point, I think Trump was going, hey, this is pretty cool. Dennis, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Spot on. So I got an email this morning, or maybe it was last night, from uh, Donald Trump. Fred, let's make something clear. These violent acts are not acts of peaceful protest. They are acts of domestic terror, and they must end now. This is a letter that uh, Trump sent out to millions and millions of his supporters. While dangerous thugs are running rampant through our streets and destroying communities, President Trump is working hard to restore law and order. The fake news and radical Democrats are pushing a narrative that is far from the truth. They don't want you to see the great work that our president is doing to protect America. But we don't care what the media and their Democrat partners think. We only care what real Americans, like Fred from Oregon, think. That's why the president asked us to personally reach out to you and then, you know, quack, 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 and take the official Trump law and order survey so that he can hear the truth. And of course, you click on the survey and it asks you a couple of questions like, you know, do you think the thugs are are this or that or whatever? And then uh, asks you for money. Let me make something clear. These violent acts are not acts of peaceful protest. They are acts of domestic terror, and they must end now. The rector of St. Philip's Episcopal Church, keep in mind it was St. John's Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C. that was cleared in front of which, that was cleared and where Trump stood with the Bible to do his little photo op. This is the rector of St. Philip's Episcopal Church in Tucson, Arizona from his Twitter feed. He shows the picture of Trump holding the Bible in front of St. John's Church. And he says, this is an awful man waving a book he hasn't read in front of a church he doesn't attend, invoking laws he doesn't understand against fellow Americans he sees as enemies, wielding a military he dodged serving to protect power he gained via accepting foreign interference, exploiting fear and anger he loves to stoke, and failing to address a pandemic he was warned about and building it all on a bed of constant lies and childish inanity. Now back to the law enforcement officers who were showing up with no badges, no insignia, no nothing. Phil Bump writing in the Washington Post 
as I mentioned just before the break, Bill Barr called these people out. Clint Watts, who is a former uh, officer in the United States Army and former FBI special agent, uh, made some really interesting observations. He said, speaking, he's speaking as a former FBI agent. He said, if I go out and pull a gun and I say, freeze, and you say, why, I would have to say, I'm an FBI agent or law enforcement or whatever, because otherwise you would be totally in your right to defend yourself against me. And somebody who is not in uniform pulls a gun on you and says, freeze, and you say, why, who are you? And they say, I'm Joe, I live, you know, down the street from you. (laughs) You have a right to defend yourself. If they say I'm the police, you frankly don't have a right to defend yourself. But they have an obligation to to not only represent themselves, but to identify themselves. Watts, uh, again, I'm quoting from Philip Bump's piece in today's Washington Post. Watts described an incident shortly after he began at the FBI when an undercover agent who'd drawn his weapon was killed by another bureau employee who confused him with the perpetrator. He introduced scores of officers without identification into a volatile scenario, and it's easy to see similar if less deadly mistakes being common. New York City Police Commissioner William Bratton weighing in on this. The Commissioner of Police for New York City. He said, if those officers engage in any type of misbehavior during the time that they are there representing the federal government, how are you to identify them? What is the need for anonymity? Well, that's what autocrats do. That's what fascists do. And when you give people, and you know, we've all seen this on Twitter, when you give people the power to hide or the ability to hide behind an anonymous facade, their behavior tends to disintegrate, to deteriorate. Back to the piece in the Washington Post, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, a professor of history at New York University and an expert on authoritarianism, noted the lack of accountability introduced by the government of Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet for the actions of loyalist forces. He adds, officials of the law are accountable to the public, something that's harder to achieve if they don't know who you are. Speaking of Pinochet, I remember uh, a demonstration here in Portland where the, uh, the, the people that you know, are now being arrested around the country calling themselves Boogaloo Boys, they just busted three of them in Vegas with Molotov cocktails. They were going to go uh, you know, try, to, try to provoke a, a violent police response to peaceful protesters by, by uh, throwing firebombs. Uh, their, their whole idea, their whole movement is about you know, creating the second civil war. And here in Portland, I saw a guy with a T-shirt on, and it had a picture of a helicopter and somebody falling out of the helicopter and, uh, you know, words about, you know, Pinochet had it right. Because what, what uh, Augusto Pinochet, the, the military dictator of Chile, the guy that uh, Milton Friedman was advising from the University of Chicago, his big thing was he privatized Social Security in Chile. And therefore, Reagan loved him. But in any case, what he would do is uh, when people protested his government, they would, they would uh, snatch them, put them in helicopters, take them up to three, 4,000 feet and throw them out of the helicopter. Clint Watts, uh, this uh, Garrett Hake uh, reporting, federal law enforcement of some kind, they won't identify themselves. All in cities, Garrett Hake, a reporter for NBC News. 
Clint Watts ads, and this is very concerning when you figure, you know, I mean, right now the Boogaloo Boys are wearing Hawaiian shirts, right? But Clint Watts said, this, is, this will very likely lead to a bunch of impersonation of law enforcement. Militia-type groups, vigilantes, dressing up the same way, using force without any authority to, quote, protect business and property, end quote, etc. He said, this is a terrible precedent. And he adds, on what basis are people expected to comply with their commands? They're well, people are well within their rights to tell these dudes to take a hike. Brad Parscale, you know, as I said earlier, they're selling Trump army hats, right? Camouflage hats, Trump hats. It's this new Army for Trump website. Brad Parscale, the campaign manager for this. I mean, keep in mind, Trump is using this for partisan political purposes, tearing our country apart and pitting Americans against Americans. And Brad Parscale is very proud of this. He says the Army for Trump website is one of those powerful tools we have to reelect President Trump. We need the help of every single one of, pres of the president's supporters to make sure that we keep him in the White House and don't send a big government socialist Democrat running on an extreme leftist agenda to Washington. With the Army for Trump website, Americans are just one click away from doing their part to reelect Trump. It's absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. So Donald Trump is on a tear about voting by mail, right? Oh, voting by mail is terrible. It's filled with fraud. You can't do it. It turns out that his press secretary in the last 11 elections voted by mail 10 times. It turns out that Donald Trump just voted by mail in the Florida primary. That may be illegal, by the way, because Mar-a-Lago is not a legal residence, and he's claiming it is a legal residence, even though it's a business. But that's a whole other story. But <laughs> vote by mail, he's on a tear against vote by mail. The real reason that Trump hates voting by mail is because he knows that the only reason he's in the White House is because of voter suppression. And there's a couple of different forms of it. I remember in the 2004 election, people were particularly amazed by this. In Ohio, people were waiting in line 10, 12, 14 hours to vote, literally all day long and well into the evening to vote, exclusively in black neighborhoods. Well, that's a form of voter suppression. You close a bunch of polling places, so you funnel everybody into one or a very small number of voting places, and then you put the broken machines in those places. The same thing happened in Georgia. It was well documented. I wrote an op-ed about it. You can read it over at commondreams.org right now. And, you know, laying this out, complete with links to the old news stories from 2004 in Ohio, 2018 in, in, um, in Georgia, etc., where, you know, this form of voter suppression, making it, you know, forcing people to wait in line two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours, or longer, is particularly difficult for people who are paid by the hour. Because you're taking money out of their pocket. I mean, I, frankly, I think you could argue that it's a poll tax. So that form of voter suppression, which is a very effective form of voter suppression, what they found was when they closed a bunch of the polling places, and the data, all of that data is uh, in my article. In Georgia, they've closed a bunch of polling places, and what it did was it cut black voter participation by 7%, which was enough to throw the election to Brian Kemp and back in 20, 
16, it, w- it was enough to throw it, well, not in Georgia to Donald Trump, but in other states. So that's number one. The second form of voter suppression that Republicans love to, love to do, and it really is at the center. And this, you know, I, in my book, The Hidden History of Voting, The War on Voting, really, really digs into this in, in depth, is, is the provisional ballot. In 2002, George W. Bush and the Republicans passed this law called the Help America Vote Act that not only gave $5.5 billion to the states to buy voting machines from two companies run by partisan Republicans, but also created a whole brand new kind of ballot called a provisional ballot. And provisional ballots only get counted when the Secretary of State says, okay, let's count them. So for example, in Ohio, when John Kerry threw in the towel in 2004, there were more provisional ballots that had not been counted, mostly from black neighborhoods, than the margin of victory of George W. Bush. John Edwards came on this program yelling about it. He was very upset that Kerry had thrown in the towel. He wanted to have a lawsuit. But the, Ken Blackwell, the Secretary of State of Ohio at that time in 2004, said, we're not going to count those provisional ballots unless there's a lawsuit. So what happens is if you get purged from the voting list because your name is the same as the name of somebody in Texas or Florida or a felon from Texas, if you get purged from the voting list, you show up to vote. You didn't know you've been purged. You show up to vote. They give you a provisional ballot. They say, here, you vote on this one. It goes in a different box, but it looks identical to the regular ballots. You vote. You think you voted. You walk out. You say to the person, you know, as you're walking out, yeah, I just voted. I just voted for Hillary Clinton. But your vote actually never gets counted. And you have no way of knowing that. Well, with mail-in balloting, there are no provisional ballots. You either get a ballot in the mail or you don't. And they come out, you know, six, eight weeks in advance. So if you don't get a ballot and the election's coming up, all you have to do is call the Secretary of State and say, you know, I think I got wrongly purged from the voting rolls. Please put me back on and mail me a ballot. So that whole provisional ballot, and this is what causes the red shift, that form of voter intimidation doesn't work or voter suppression doesn't work. And then finally, you know, the way that William Rehnquist made his chops in the Republican Party back in the 60s was standing in line challenging black, Hispanic, and Native American voters asserting that they didn't have a right to vote and scaring them away. And again, you can't do that with vote by mail. So of course Trump hates vote by mail. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And that is, of course, why he he just said it right out loud, you know, with mail-in ballot, and you won't ever see a Republican elected again, right? Tom Harbin here with you. And on the line with us is uh, David Daly, Senior Fellow and Communications Director with FairVote.org. He's the former Editor-in-Chief over at Salon. And his most recent book, Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. His previous book, Rat Eft, Why Your Vote Doesn't Count, we've discussed on this program. FairVote.org, of course, is the website. David, welcome back to the program. You write that you smell a rat here in the GOP's gerrymandering plans for 2021. They did a pretty radical gerrymandering job in 2010. The census happens every year that ends with a zero. The year or two after that, you typically see these lines being redrawn in the states. Tell us about this. I think you're absolutely right. Thanks for having me on, Tom. What happened in Missouri in 2018 is that more than 60% of the state's voters signed on for nonpartisan redistricting reform. They voted to take the power 
to draw these lines away from the politicians and to put it in the hands of a neutral, nonpartisan state, a demographer, a a bureaucrat, a statistician, who would be overseen by a truly independent citizen commission. Republicans have been actively trying to undermine the will of the people there ever since. And the bill that they advanced in Jefferson City earlier last month, it not only guts what the people demanded in 2018, it sets up what I think is a real warning sign for Democrats and and those who would want to see fair maps around the country. You can see the playbook in the little details of this bill that I imagine are going to be popping up kind of Alex style in state legislatures all around the country in 2021. It is nuanced, it's technical, it's very sophisticated and complicated, but the goal of it all is to create very red maps in all of these states and in many cases to uh, change the definition of representation itself. We have numerous states, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin are, and Michigan are perhaps top examples where the majority of people who went and voted in the last election, voting for their members of the House, or for that matter, for their state legislatures, voted for Democrats. The majority of people voted for Democrats. And yet those states are majority represented in Congress by Republicans, even though they may have a Democratic governor, because that's the one statewide race where you can't gerrymander a governorship. What other states are like that? How extensive is this? How deeply buried is this in the legal fabric of these states? I mean, how hard is it going to be to make it so that if the majority of the people you know, of Michigan actually want to be represented by Democrats in the House of Representatives, they are? It's very, very difficult. Right now, there are 59 million Americans who live in a state in which one or both chambers of the state legislature is controlled by the party that won fewer votes in 2018. So that is nearly Is that always the Republicans? All 59 million of them are states that voted for Democrats and are governed by Republicans. So that includes Michigan. It includes Pennsylvania. It includes North Carolina. It includes Wisconsin. It includes chambers in Ohio. This is a deep and very serious problem. In all of these states throughout this decade, when voters have given sometimes huge majorities to the Democrats, Republicans have still managed to hold sometimes veto-proof majorities in these state legislatures. So it's deeply embedded. Even when the Democrats manage to win an election, it's not enough to change the nature of who controls these chambers. I think the best example is probably Wisconsin in 2018, in which Democrats kicked Scott Walker out of office. The voters in Wisconsin re-elect Tammy Baldwin. They give Democrats every single elected statewide office, and they favor Democratic Assembly candidates by more than 200,000 votes statewide. And yet Republicans hold on to the Assembly 63 to 36. Democrats can't make any headway at all. And we see what that chamber then did back in April. They essentially forced the voters of Wisconsin to go out during a pandemic and vote in person and choose between their health and their right to vote. It's a very dangerous situation. So, you know, I think most people would agree that, for example, what California has done, and I know a few other states have picked up on this. I believe California was the first, correct me if I'm wrong, which is to say that we're going to have our congressional districts, both federal and state, 
drawn by these nonpartisan groups, drawn based on math and statistics rather than politics. And the people keep asking for this, as you point out, you know, with this ballot initiative in Missouri. But it ain't working that way. And the solution that Democrats offer to Republican explicit gerrymandering, as we've been describing, is when we have power, when we, the Democrats, have power, let's go with one of these nonpartisan commissions and just make everything fair. And there, there are some people who are saying, Democrats, you're always taking the nice, you're always being the nice guys. You know, why don't the Democrats gerrymander the state so that no matter what happens, they're going to control it for the next 10 years? The difficulty there for Democrats is even if that's what they want to do, there aren't a lot of states where that's possible. Democrats could perhaps manage to get a, a seat here and there if they took that tactic. But it would not be especially effective. In most of the states in which Democrats are likely to have complete control of the process, they're pretty much blue states already. So Democrats already control almost all of those seats, you know? I mean, so, so Democrats mm -hmm. control the process in Maryland, but they already have seven of the eight seats. They control the process in Oregon. They already have five of the six seats. They control the process in Illinois, where it's still an overwhelmingly Democratic a delegation. So the Democrats could maybe squeeze a seat out of Illinois if, if they kind of drew spaghetti strand districts coming out of Chicago and stretching statewide north to south. They could perhaps do the same thing in Virginia if the redistricting amendment there fails in the fall and maybe steal. I think we could pull it off seat. here in Oregon. We could, we could get rid of Greg Walden's seat. The trouble is Democratic incumbents get nervous. And that's what happened in Maryland yeah. back in 2011. There were folks who wanted to draw an 8-0 Democratic map, and the incumbent said, boy, if you spread the votes out like that, some of us might lose in a close year. Mm -hmm. So let's lock right. the incumbents in and give them one. But if you could talk the Democratic yeah. incumbents into, you know, 52, 53 percent districts, you could probably get a handful of seats out of it. But well, the, there is something the noble. I mean, you know, Democrats actually believe in government in, and in, specifically yeah. in good government. The, the, the phrase that Paul Weyrich famously ridiculed in 1980 when he talked about goo-goo Republicans. Goo-goo. Uh, you know, good government. They believe in good government. Uh, they want everybody to vote. And that seems like a good thing. And, and I'm all in favor of, you know, holding up for this. So what can we do? I think the solution to this is complicated, but at FairVote, we believe in the Fair Representation Act. I would go look at our website and Don Byers' plan for uh, multi-member districts and ranked choice voting that would Great. really, really we'll be it. the You're gold standard of... To Tom Hang on just a second. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. That guy always steps on me. FairVote.org. You can get all the <laughs> no details. Worries. My apologies for the time cue there. David Daly. Thank you, David. Always a pleasure, Tom. Thank you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.